A reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, verse 13 through 4, verse 11. Then Jesus came to Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son, son who I love. With him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. This is God's word. You may be seated. You know, I don't know what it is, but after 16 years of uh, Sunday mornings with you, when you're not here, it just doesn't feel right. So I'm really glad to see all of you. And I bring you greetings from um, 50 missionary men from uh, Mexico City to all the way down to the, uh, to the, the Patagonia area of, of, uh, of Chile and Argentina, uh, some men from Concepcion, uh, Chile. They all send their greetings to you. And the, the week that all of us were down in Brazil together at the retreat and uh, reconnecting with God and with each other and trying to take care of these guys that, that are expanding the borders of the kingdom, in Central America and in South America and in, in Mexico, uh, it, was, it was a fantastic week. And uh, a lot of these fellows don't have a lot of resources and they don't have a lot of folk that are taking care of them and wondering how they're doing. And so every two years when we go down to take care of these fellows and to worship with them and to spend time with them and to put them in small groups and to eat together and, and all of that, it's, it's just a real tonic for their souls and uh, our prayers were answered once again as I think these guys left refreshed and renewed in what it is that they do for the kingdom of God. We're able to go back to their places of, of work and of ministry as, uh, as different guys. And uh, they, they send their thanks to this congregation for the ways that we help all of that to help them during that happen in that week uh, that we're all together in Achabai, just outside of Sao Paulo, Brazil. And uh, it's good for me to be back uh, you know, it, again, it just, it, it, um, it doesn't seem like Sunday unless I see you. And I'm grateful that, uh, uh, and maybe, you know, you go away for two weeks and you're just, you're grateful for your church family 
and for all of the relationships and all of the memories and the experiences that we have together in the kingdom of God. Uh, we're going to uh, get into the sermon. I am going to talk about, uh, about Brazil in that week, uh, here in a couple of weeks on a Sunday morning, so we can all kind of share in that experience. But this morning, we're going to be looking at that text that, uh, that Ryan just read for us. And before we do that, just a reminder that the outline for this sermon and some places where you can take notes is inside of the announcement sheet. Uh, you can pull that out right now at the bottom of that. In the conclusion section, you can see that there are some questions that are going to be used for your small groups tonight when you meet to talk over what we're, we're doing right now in our study. Let's begin with a word of prayer and then into the text. Father, I, I don't know how you do it, but you do it in so many glorious and beautiful ways that you take people who are so different from each other not just in our ethnic background, but socioeconomic ways, in educational ways, in the experience of life ways. And you bring us all together through your word and through your spirit and by the cross, and you make us a family. A family that is not only representative of your kingdom, but a family of people that represent the way that human beings are to relate to each other, but even more importantly, how we're to relate to you. And yet we find ourselves in this world, Father, as, as, as beautiful as it is, we, we run face first at times into the fallenness of it. And we need to be reminded of these great central truths from your word that, that, that galvanize our spirit in ways, Father, that, that give us courage and fortitude and perseverance when we encounter temptations in this life. And so as we study this text, we are asking, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, to give us eyes that are able to see it and ears that are able to hear it in, in ways that transform us to your glory and to our joy and peace. And this we pray with all of our heart in the name of the only Son, Jesus. Amen. As you know, we're in this series where we're looking at the life of Jesus. And one of the challenges at the beginning of this series was to cut in half your TV time every day and to dedicate that half of uh, your TV time that's been freed up now to do something else, to dedicate that time to reading the Gospels. Uh, last time we were together, uh, three weeks ago, we looked at the, the birth of Jesus in, in, uh, in Bethlehem. And how Jesus of Nazareth came into the world, the Son of God, fully God, fully man, and lived his life. The incarnation is a great mystery. This morning, we're going to look at the baptism of Jesus and the temptations. Now, the baptism of Jesus is, is incredibly important. It shows up in all the Gospels, although in the fourth Gospel, it's John the Baptist kind of recalling what had happened when the Spirit of God came down on Jesus like a dove and said, You are my Son. Now, in Matthew and Mark and Luke, those Gospels that we call the synoptics because they look a lot alike, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus' baptism is linked with the temptation in the desert with Satan. The baptism and the temptations go together. Why? Why do the synoptics put them together? Right after the baptism, you have Jesus being led into the desert by the Spirit. Well, in, in terms of literature, just in terms of the English language and literature, it's interesting from the standpoint of antithesis. 
I mean, one moment you have Jesus in the water, he's in the, the Jordan River, and a, the stream is, is flowing over his body, and the next minute he's in the desert. One moment there's the voice of God, and the next moment it's the voice of Satan. At one place there is spiritual fulfillment. You are my son, in whom I am well pleased. I love this son. And in the next moment it's physical emptiness. If you're really the Son of God, why don't you turn these stones into bread? But theologically, not only is it more interesting, it is much more essential. And the reason the baptisms and the temptations, I think, are linked together in the Gospels, one of the reasons is that it answers a very realistic question. The question is this, what happens when you commit your life to God? What happens when you commit your life to God? The answer to that question is your life becomes a battlefield. Your life becomes a battlefield. One of the most misleading things that you can believe about the Christian faith is that on the day you become a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth, that is the day that you begin to live a trouble-free life. Your life becomes a battlefield. And what this text that Ryan read for us is going to reveal to us, it's going to reveal to us four things. The first is the nature of baptism, the nature of Satan. Number three, the nature of temptations. And then finally, what do you do with all of that? Well, we know the story of John the Baptist, the man who baptized Jesus. His life calling and all of his work was to prepare the hearts of the people, the people of Israel, to receive the Messiah. To be able to recognize him when he walked down the street. To be able to recognize him by the kind of words that he preached and spoke. And that meant getting people to think about God. And to think about God's kingdom and the kind of people that they needed to be to have hearts that were sensitive to the Messiah's coming. And the word that we most associate with John the Baptist is what word? Repent. He is a repent kind of guy. Look at uh, Matthew chapter 3 verses 1 and 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying what? Say it together. Repent, for the kingdom of God, uh, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Drop down to verse 8 in your Bible. Produce fruit in keeping with what? Repentance. Look at verse 11. I baptize you with water for what? Repentance, but after me. This is going to be the Messiah that he's talking about. After me comes one who is more powerful than I, I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. If you go to the first chapter of Mark, right there at the very beginning where there's a description of John the Baptist and his baptism, verse 4 says, he appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of what? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, repentance is one of those heavy-duty Bible words. And for the most part, when we think about repentance, what do we think of? We think about something that's so heavy that happens in our life that it feels like one of those acme saves drops out of the sky on top of us. And quite frankly, sometimes repentance can feel that way. Sometimes our life can get so out of track with the will of God that it is a little painful and it is a little bit violent in the sense of changing directions on a dime that it feels heavy and like a gigantic weight has been dropped on you. So heavy is that change to get into the stream of God's will for your life. But repentance is what people do to realign their life with the will of God. 
One day you're going in this direction only to recognize that you're falling face first into poisons and into the toxins. And what repentance is, is, is changing your direction 180 degrees to go in the opposite, complete opposite direction of death and devastation in order to find life and to live life in the way that God wants his people to do it. Repentance is basically saying, I'm no longer going to live according to my will, but I'm going to live according to the will of God. Now, let's think for a moment about how all of this relates to baptism. When we, and I'm talking about us in this room, when we talk about baptism, it's usually in the context of forgiveness of sins. In fact, sometimes that's the only way that we talk about baptism, that it's about the forgiveness of sins, of sins being washed away. And all of that way of talking about baptism is, is wonderfully true and wonderfully great. It's never to be downplayed. But baptism is more than just the washing away of sin. Baptism is also about saying that when it comes to the will of God, I'm all in. When it comes to obedience to God and living the life that is pleasing to God, I'm all about that kind of life. When a person becomes a child of God, they commit to living according to the Father's will. And so baptism, in a manner of speaking, is also a, a human public declaration that they intend to live for God and God alone. And so in the history of the, the entire history of the world, there has only been one person, completely sinless, completely righteous, that their baptism did not need the process of repentance nor the gift, that grace of, of the forgiveness of our sins, but in his baptism, he is declaring that God's ways are going to be his ways regardless of where that way might take him. And so Jesus comes to John, and John recognizes all of that in the Christ. And he says in, in chapter 3, verse 14, I need to be baptized by you. And you come to me? And Jesus says, yes, this is about fulfilling all righteousness in verse 15. And John takes Jesus down into the water, and as Jesus comes up, the Spirit of God descends like a dove upon Jesus, and it says, verse 17, that this is my Son. In, in the Hebrew way of thinking, it's the, 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 uh, the bat kol. It's that little voice, the daughter of a voice, the little voice from heaven. It says, this is my Son, whom I love, and in Him I am well pleased. And the very next verse tells us that God the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And He goes into this place uh, on some of the trips to Israel, uh, just on the north end of the Dead Sea, as the, the Jordan River comes into that north end of the Dead Sea, to the west, there is a, a, a wadi, a, a dry riverbed, a big dry riverbed known as the Wadi Kilt. Uh, having walked through that area, it is in, it's completely desolate. It is rugged. It is stark. It is no place that you want to live. And church tradition says that where John was baptizing, this is the place where the Spirit led Jesus for 40 days and 40 nights without food. He's there for over a month and a week 
going without food. Forty days, forty nights. And at the end of that time period, and this was one of the, the, uh, the really staggering memories of, of, of Israel, was you're standing in a place, if this is the place where it all happened, you're standing in the place where evil embodied itself in such a way that it could speak human language. And at the end of that 40 days, Satan comes. Now, what do you do with Satan? What do you do with, with Satan? I mean, we live in this culture that has trouble with the existence of Satan. For, for a lot of people, to see someone who believes in the devil, they think that that person is maybe primitive in the way that they think, they're naive, or they're superstitious, but they just don't get the world the way that the world works. There's no such thing as this being that we can, we can project all of our guilt and transgressions on. He doesn't exist. The flip side of that, though, think about this. If there is not a Satan, if you do not believe in this personal, malevolent force at work in the lives of humans to, to bring wickedness into the world, to not believe in that kind of a being is to have an incurably, incurably low view of humans. It's hard to believe that anybody would say, in light of what happened at Texas Tech and what happened in Las Vegas and all of the other things that have happened violently in our country, it's hard to believe that there's any evidence whatsoever that in general human beings are getting better. Because they're not. I believe in the existence of Satan. I believe that there is a personal malevolent force that has set himself not only against God and his kingdom, but every person that makes up the citizenry of that kingdom. I remember um, that the point in my life where I, you know, I, I began to understand a little bit more about, biblically speaking, the Bible had to, you know, had to, to describe Satan as, and it, and it came to me, ironically, when I was reading C.S. Lewis's book, the screw tape letters, because I was dumbfounded at that point by the extreme intelligence of Satan. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul saw, says that Satan is a schemer, that there is this intelligence behind the personality of Satan that is able to concoct plans and strategies and schemes to bring woe into the world and to bring woe into our lives. Jesus tells his disciples in John chapter 8 that not only is he a schemer, but he is a, a father of lies. He is a master deceiver. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says that Satan can camouflage himself and make himself appear and to look like an angel of light. Jude tells us that Satan can only be pushed back by the power of God. And in Luke chapter 4, Luke tells us in the same story about the temptations that Satan waits for the most opportune time to strike. The thing that we should never forget is that there is, number two, an intelligent being at the center of evil. And when Satan appears... He attempts to counterattack 
every truth spoken by God at Jesus' baptism. When he appears, he is trying to counterattack the words that God speaks to the Christ, my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And that really tells us something about the nature of temptations, right? There's a, a, a fellow, he's, he's no longer with us, uh, passed away some years ago, a fellow by the name of Rich Mullins. And um, one, one of the things that, that Rich helped me to understand is that temptations are an attempt to separate us from God and His truths. And so one of the, the quotes that I think is very famous that Mullins has, has left with us, he says, I failed many times to avoid these kinds of temptations. But that's not what the devil was really interested in. What he was trying to do is make me feel apart from God. In other words, on my own. What he was trying to do was to make me feel apart from God. Now I know what Satan would like most to take from us is our true knowledge of who we are which is the children of God. And so Jesus is in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, and he's fasting, and he's gotten to that point of human weakness that Satan has been waiting on, and he waits until Jesus is hungry beyond any experience of hunger that any of us have had. And he says to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become what? Bread. What is at the heart of that? Satan is saying to Jesus, God says he loves you. You heard it with your own ears. But here you are in the desert, starving to death. Is that really the way that a God who loves you is going to show you and manifest his love to you? Are you a beloved son with a father in heaven? Or are you just a guy by himself in the desert starving to death? And Jesus responds. He says, man's not going to live by bread alone. He's not going to live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. What Jesus is saying is that he is satisfied with the word of God that comes to him. And what is that word that was said to him? You are my, finish it, son, whom I love, and in you I am well pleased. Jesus is not interpreting his present situation of of being hungry at the end of 40 days. He is not interpreting that present situation as proof that he has somehow lost the love of God. He's basically saying, you know, God the Spirit led me into the desert and God the Spirit will lead me out. The second temptation is about Jesus leaping from the highest place there, the temple, and God sending his angels to rescue him before he hits the ground. Satan is saying, can you trust God to fulfill his word and save you? The third temptation goes up on a mountain where Jesus can see everything. And Satan says, is aligning your life with the will of God going to pay off in the end? If you bow down and worship me, I'll give you everything right now. 
And Jesus says in verse 10, Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. And I think that in those words we find the path through temptation. He says, Worship and serve Yahweh alone. Him only. And it's this, God in all His beauty is the path through the temptations that attempt to destroy us. If there was a definition of a temptation for our purposes this morning, I I think it would look like this. God is being presented as depriving us by His commands of what is good. And so we think that we must take matters into our own hands and act contrary to what He has said. Now, my friends, I, I never want to downplay the place of willpower when it comes to fighting through temptations. But willpower is not the game changer when it comes to temptations. Uh, there's a fellow by the name of, of Roy Baumeister. He's considered to be the top experimental social psychologist in the world. He wrote a book some years ago called Willpower. And basically what he's saying is that willpower can make a difference for a while, but it's a limited commodity. You only have X number of, of willpower units. I mean, to think about willpower this way is to think about it like CrossFit. You don't have the strength at the end of the workout like you do at the beginning of the workout. I mean, at the beginning of the workout, you can at least stand up. And at the end of that workout, you've got to lay down. Baumeister believes that willpower gets depleted, that you don't have the strength to fight with willpower, and there is nothing more evident than that than in those moments when we say, I... I just don't have the strength to fight it. Another place where willpower lets us down is in the, in the moments of, you know, those unguarded moments. We, you know, we, we know, I'm not going to be angry. 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 Oh, there's a, a restaurant I'm going to go to. Somebody cuts you off, and in that unguarded moment, you get angry. I believe you can't keep saying no unless you have a bigger Yes. And the Messiah says to Satan, man, as good as that bread might be, and as hungry as I am, as much as, as, as I would like to avoid the cross and be glorified in other ways, I'm going to serve God and worship God only. And when he says worshiping God, he's not thinking of, of merely of these acts, the singing, the prayer, the sermon, the collection, the communion, and these kinds of things. He's talking about, he's quoting for Deuteronomy 6. He is talking about loving God with all of your heart and your soul and your mind and strength until that God fills up your God-shaped hole in your heart until the point that it overflows with joy and satisfaction and power in this life. You know, the Bible never says worship. What does the Bible say? You're going to worship. It assumes worship. Worship God and God alone. The Bible recognizes that the human heart was made for worship, but make sure what it is that you worship is something that is going to liberate you and strengthen you and bless you. Worship and serve God only. Now, are there some practical things you can do to overcome temptation? Absolutely. You don't go into the areas where your personal temptations lurk, whatever they might be. You make yourself accountable in the areas where you struggle with somebody that you trust. You pray. You memorize scriptures that deal with that particular temptation. 
But in the end, it's about God becoming larger than our temptations. And to always interpret whatever our situation is in light of our relationship with God. Children with a father who is so beautiful that when you get an eye full of him, your eyes can't help but tear up. It's about worshiping the God who has put his spirit in you that testifies with your spirit, Paul will tell us in the book of Romans, that we are children of God, that we are sons of God and daughters of God, regardless of what it is, Romans chapter 8, that's trying to separate us, those temptations, separate us from the love of God. And we worship and we make much of Him and we sing out and we serve. And that God gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It's just like a marriage. It's just like a marriage. That when you do the things that are proper to a marriage and you live together in such a way that is defined by marriage, that regardless of whatever it is that you go through, you come out on the other side closer together. Intimacy is the product of shared experiences. It's the knowledge of the person you love and who loves you along with the experiences of that love coming true and being verified and confirmed in your life that leads to intimacy. The same thing with God. That's why we we come to this place together I mean, I believe that you worship God every day of your life, but there is a reason why we come together on the first day of the week. And it's not just because God said so, even though that may be a good beginning reason. We come together on the first day of the week to see that we are not alone, but that we are part of a kingdom that is bigger than us. And that we see in the faces of the people around us ways that God has worked in their life and blessed them in ways that he has never blessed me. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. I mean, you don't see the complete picture until all of the pieces are put together and you see them linked together in the fellowship of a jigsaw puzzle. And we come and we talk about those truths and we pray about those truths and we hear how God is working in people's lives and in this world and in worshiping God and in those truths becoming evident in our life, we know that we are children of God and God gets bigger and bigger and bigger and he becomes that big yes when the temptation is you're on your own. It's not going to be the way that you think it is, so you've got to take matters into your own hands. You don't believe that God has his best interests at heart, therefore do it yourself. Whatever it is, let that take the place of the God who feels apart. That's the scheme. And that's why we come and we sing, not just going through the motions, but we're singing truths. We're singing the truths that change our souls. We're singing the truths about the creator of the heavens and the earth that is so giant that we look like molecules to him. But he knows our name. And he knows the number of hairs that are falling out of my head on a daily basis. 
and our names are engraved upon his hands. I want you to be his child. There's no other life. And that's why we're going to sing this next song. It's about Jesus being Lord. It's about Jesus being Lord. And if you've never done that, you're withholding from yourself beauty and majesty and life and joy that's inexpressible. Peace that is beyond understanding. It's not an easy life to live life as a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth. I just spent 10 days with the guys that can testify to that. But it is the life that transforms anything and transcends anything that you might go through. So it's time to change your life. Repent. It's time to have those sins washed away and declare that from this day forward, God's ways are my, God, are, are my ways. And if it's God's will, then I'm all in. But that's the life that I'm going to live and all of the blessings will come in as well as all of the experiences that you will go through going hand in hand with God through that. And if there are ways that we can make that happen for you this morning, come down to the front and talk to these shepherds as we stand and worship God together. Seek ye first the kingdom of God.